Have you ever felt, you know, not so original? Like you have no creativity? Or that the good ideas are just beyond your grasp? And that it's impossible? Well, today's episode of Early Music Monday is for you. Okay, I'm going to start today's episode with a very motivational speech from one of history's great philosophers, Ned Schneebly, a.k.a. Dewey Finn, a.k.a. Jack Black in the School of Rock. The scene starts, he's sitting there pretending to be a substitute teacher, and he's sitting there and the kids are sitting at their desk and he's asleep. And they're like, are you going to teach us anything? And he said, just do whatever you want. That's the first lesson. Just do whatever you want. Just kidding. Then he said, they say, well, I want to learn from my teacher. And eventually he says, all right, you want to learn something? Here's a useful lesson for you. Give up. Just quit. Because in this life... You can't win. Oh, sure, you can try, but you're just going to lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? The man. Oh, you don't know the man? Oh, he's everywhere. In the White House, down the hall, Miss Mullins. She's the man. And the man ruined the ozone, burning down the Amazon, and he kidnapped Shamu and put her in a chlorine tank. Okay? And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. But oh no, guess what? The man ruined that too with a little thing called MTV. So don't waste your time trying to come up with anything pure or awesome because the world is just going to call you a fat washed up loser and crush your soul. So just do the world a favor and give up. Scene. I begin today's show with that epic, timeless monologue because that speech and by extension that entire movie is what motivated me to become a musician in the first place it kind of started me on the path it was my gateway drug to jez waldo <laughs> and uh early music sounds weird but it's real it's like classic rock is the pop music equivalent to early music anyway I've been the reason why I start that also is because a lot of the students so my senior class this year at the high school is I've been teaching them since they were in seventh grade I've had them for six years which is a pretty rare thing and they're all like freaks about music even the ones who aren't going to study music they like love the rep that we do they love singing they love learning about vocal technique they're all kind of these i've brainwashed them for seven years to really like high level rep and stuff (laughs) so and they're just like the best kids and now they're getting to the point where they're 
trying to decide what they want to do when they graduate, which is really weird because I still think they're 12. And some of them are still short enough and look young enough to be 12, which is hilarious. But I've had, I've had probably four or five conversations in the last two weeks with different students about what they want to do with their lives and like do they want to study music or do they not and been talking about like well I don't know I I love music I think I want to study music but I also want something that's you know can make a living (laughs) it's like nice here I am not making a living but they have a good point and that's what they've been taught by their parents and by society and by their own experience too, you know, like they've seen things and they're old enough now to not be dumb and see what teachers are valued as. But I also have this like, so it kind of, to me, it comes, it's like this pendulum swinging back and forth generationally. We had this generation that was like, you put your head down, you work hard, you make a living, you, you work, you get paid, you go home. And then you had this generation that was like, just live your dream. Everyone needs to stick it to the man and live the dream and and go and pursue your dream. Dreamland, dream, dreams, big dreams and with the dreams and the sleeping dreams and you're going to make millions of dollars doing the dream. And that turned out to be kind of a bust. And so then the next generation is like, no, screw your dreams. Your dreams are crap. Just find a good job and put your head down, work hard, and go home. And then it's swinging back to just live your dreams. Yay, back to the dreams. And so it's kind of this like battle of what do you do? And I find, I feel like my students are caught between that that place of, I love this, but I can't do it because it doesn't bring in enough. And I, I feel like the school system... Ooh, this is bold. I feel like the school system has done them a disservice to think that there is one path, there is one option, and there is one end game. If you're going to go and be a musician, you have to already basically be freak talented, be Mozart, and then you can be a performer, and then that's it. Or you can be a music teacher at a high school and get paid nothing. The end as if those are the only two options and it's like whoa there are so many options if you're willing to like pursue the dream means a lot means something completely different to me than it does I think to a lot of the younger generation who are like who have these big dreams and I still have big dreams but I'm kind of in the grind of trying to live it and it, so it looks a little different, but it it's this wide-eyed, the world is before you kind of anticipation of youth that I just see being cr- like crushed and stifled. Not because people are being told, don't live your dreams, but because we're not helping them see like how to get there. So if I had... So I take I take this to early music and Sound of Ages. So I talk about so I think about the history of Sound of Ages. Well, 
I didn't have the idea for Sound of Ages until I was in my master's degree. It wasn't part of my plan. It wasn't something I was like always wanting to do. I had this one goal, this one broad vision of I want to make a living being a choral musician. Okay? Awesome. That's a great goal. Well, maybe. I guess it depends on who you ask. And then you just, you have grit and you work relentlessly to that goal, single-minded to that goal. But that doesn't mean you pursue one path to do one thing and you don't take anything else. Like, I never would have done that if I didn't go do a master's. If I didn't, like, get really good at singing, I didn't take this music history course, this renaissance course, and it it just kind of snowballed one decision at a time, one opportunity at a time. And there's a fine balance between taking the opportunities that are presented to you and going and getting opportunities and seeking the opportunities and creating them for yourself. And and you have to kind of juggle a little bit of both. And you got to be okay to make see if you're career is going to look a little bit different than you anticipated but if you find that the principles and the like big umbrella goal is still met it can look like a lot of different things and so I think of Sound of Age as like a startup business and for those of you who are students for those of you who are trying to make it in your careers if you're early musicians, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's this kind of rule about, it's like the seven-year rule where it takes companies and startups and businesses about seven years to, to kind of get their footing and then they start to break out into, you know, into the world or into the, the pool of the the ocean of competition, I guess, or or whatever, and you know, there's always outliers. Takes, you know, it's like they start and day one they have a million fans, but even then, I I even then, I challenge you to find a group or something or someone who is a true outlier who didn't spend any time building before they were discovered and had basically no path, and just started and became great. You take Apple, you take Steve Jobs, you take all of these choirs. Like, I even think about Tenebrae Choir. I remember Tenebrae, like Nigel Short, he he got, I remember he did, he came to BYU, and he did a question and answer about how Tenebrae started, and he said that it was, he he was asked to put together a choir of singers for this wedding of, you know, all these these mutual people that a bunch of the singers knew. And he got the singers together, and they sang, and it was great. And the singers are like, Nigel, you have to keep this going. This is, ama- this is like an amazing ensemble. And then Tenebrae was born. And we just think, what the one thing? But Nigel's story is he spent years in the professional singing circuit. It's not just like, yeah, I just knew these people and we just did it and went. But he spent years as a singer. There's something really profound about singers being conductors. 
And anyway, that's a whole other story, and we've talked about that before. But it's not – it took – and then even then, it was like, okay, this great ensemble was born, but how long did it take for people to, like, know who they were? And how long of a path was it before – People in the United States were like, whoa, Tenebrae, right? I just feel like no one sees, no one ever sees the seven years. They just see the beginning of the breakout. Like, whoa, this group came onto the scene three years ago, and they're amazing. Awesome. Don't see the seven years before that of the of the daily grind, of the disappointment, of the of the practicing, I think of uh, Braden Hoffman, who we had on the show as a lute player and a guitarist. But how many years did he spend in the practice room bleeding fingers, you know, throwing down lute heavy metal before he started to do stuff on YouTube and getting tens of thousands of views? And even still, he's I don't know what he would say about his own career, but it it's still probably this this grind and trying to break out. And so it just makes me think of that we do a disservice when we just boil it down to, yeah, pursue your dream. Or, no, dreams, like, don't be a dreamer. Do something practical. You got to find the, you got to find the dream and then work the practical and work so hard at it every day, the grit principle, in order to get there. It's both. It's both live your dream and do something practical. That's what it is. That's the answer. I just came up with the answer just then. Bam. There it is. And it might seem impossible, but it's not. And so, again, with Sound of Ages, I remember... Our first recording session, our first recording session was in the cafetorium. That's a real word. It's an auditorium connected to the cafeteria. And we recorded in the cafeteria because it was kind of reverberant, but not really. Anyway, and the lights hummed a lot. So we had to like, we had to bring in a bunch of lamps so it looked very Stranger Things. We had a bunch of lamps on the floor, and it, it was very, and the lights were all, it was just very, it was kind of cool, actually, but it was super primitive, and it, anyway, and I just remember thinking, this is awesome. This is like, and then I realized Steve Jobs starting in a garage. We recorded in a cafetorium and we were just recorded like six or seven pieces and it wasn't anything amazing and the recordings were okay we had good singers still but anyway and now you know we just did ACDA national the virtual one and ACDA Utah in the same year and I think of the journey it's taken to get there of just consistent daily effort of I'm going to just keep going and keep grinding and keep listening to people wiser than me and saying, what do you, what do you think my blind spots are? What do we, what do I do about this? 
And as I've asked people smarter than me, and I've asked colleagues, and I've asked friends, and I've asked members of the choir, what are we missing? What could we do better? I've gleaned a lot of insights, and it's been painful, and I've had to realize that I don't know as much as I think I do and eat my fair share of humble pie. But that's kind of, I think about all of the things I've learned, how I rehearse differently now and, and how I pick music differently now. We've expanded the, at first, and I don't know if I've talked about this on the air, but at first we were going to do literally music. I was a purist and I was gonna and I said we are not doing anything later than Mozart ever and I remember the first it was the first it was the project after the Stranger Things cafetorium Spanish Fork Junior High School recording session I was trying to piece together a concert our first you know live performance and I was trying to piece together something that would be diverse and have a theme and I couldn't find things and that would cover kind of all of the time periods that we specialize in and it was really hard I was like this is really hard to get Mozart and Palestrina on the same concert and to not pay a fortune on on getting perform like um uh live performers for strings and continuo and stuff like that and it just didn't, it, it had this feeling of it's not clicking together. So we had a couple recordings and we ended up getting accepted to ACDA Utah in 2018. And I had the the idea, okay, well maybe we'll do Renaissance and Neo-Renaissance of like just 20th century and just Renaissance. So we did our first our first live performance was that ACDA Utah 2018, and our program was Simple Complexity, the music of Arvo Pert and Palestrina, because I saw great similarities in their approach and in their aesthetic and how simple it, it, it's a deep, not wide kind of approach to musical concepts where they both have a very, very, very narrow um, set of rules or aesthetic principles that they follow and then they explore all the way down to the deepest, like the tip of the iceberg, bottom of the iceberg in that particular set of aesthetic principles. So Arvo, Parrot, and Palestrina together create this simple complexity of it's really simple it sounds kind of simple but it's really complex to make it work the way they make their style work and I think it worked really well I I it was inspired from um I am very religious and I know that it was inspired from a place that wasn't me and it worked really well and I want I'm going to expound it eventually to be a full program or a full disc and it's it's great. And that that started the snowball rolling of, okay, we can pivot and we can adjust and we can... The goal became then not to be an early music choir that does early music, but to bring early music out of the museum by showing 
the audience how it's relevant. And by doing that, we actually have to do more of the music that they're familiar with and slowly introduce them to music of yesteryear, I guess. And it just kind of snowballed. And I'm still tweaking a little bit of of what rep we do and how much, what's the balance of Renaissance to contemporary? What is the goal? Is our goal to just be a sonic library? That's not really my goal. I don't want to be the Talus Scholars. The Talus Scholars are freaking amazing. And they already exist. So I'm not going to go and try to recreate the Talus Scholars. So we have to be something different. And so that's kind of where we're at in the process. And, you know, there's days where I think, uh, this is impossible. I can't do it. It's not going to be anything. It's not going to work. And, but then there's other days where I'm pumped and I'm super psyched and everything's, and I'm like, this is going to be something big. We're going to be touring the world. We're going to be Tenebrae basically. But, you know, you, you, again, it's all about finding the balance of, okay, one step at a time, daily grind, and it's going to be okay. And it's going to be what it's going to be. And you take the opportunities and you seek the opportunities. A little bit of both. So I think that as early musicians, as choral musicians, as creatives, it's kind of, you know, take the the narrowest niche of who's listening to the broadest category early music early choral music musicians early musicians choral musicians musicians creatives appreciatives i don't know if you're an appreciator of this kind of a podcast you're definitely a creative person in some field or aspect so and we I just think that there has to be, and there is, I think it's starting and it's been happening and I see people doing it way better than me of the shift in paradigm of how we break out and how we make this more of a mainstream thing. And we're never going to be Taylor Swift with her new, I mean, think about that for a second. Taylor Swift is making millions of dollars re-recording and reselling songs she's already written. <laughs> Are you kidding me with this? She's doing covers of herself making and making millions of dollars. And yeah, they sound different and they're really good. And she has spoken to an audience and they love her. They the music is part of them. And I realized, it's like, what if I was to take the most hardcore Taylor Swift fan, and I I like Taylor Swift. I don't I don't have any like qualms about Taylor Swift's music. I think that it's great, and I like a lot of her songs. And I think she's brilliant, and in like in what she does, she has a really a real gift. But I but I was doing this hypothetical scenario of like, what if I insulted the music of Taylor Swift to a hardcore Taylor Swift fan? How offended would they be? It's because the music has become part of them somehow, you know? And so how do we help the audience and a broader audience help early music become a part of them or choral music become a part of them or more broadly, again, classical music become a part of them? 
that's that's one of the questions that I strive to answer with Sound of Ages. But how to do that, it literally seems, when I think of that, it literally seems impossible. And I have a friend who told me it's just never going to happen. Making early <laughs> Renaissance stuff mainstream is never going to happen. And I said, okay, bet. Because it does seem impossible some days. So there's a book that my wife is reading, a.k.a. listening to on Audible, um, called The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. Kotler? Kotler? Don't know. K-O-T-L-E-R. I probably should know who that is, but I don't. And The Art of Impossible, let me just read to you the book sleeve. What does it take to accomplish the impossible? What does it take to shatter our limitations, exceed our expectations, and to turn our greatest hopes into our most recent achievements? There it is. Live the dream. Best-selling author and peak performance expert Stephen Cutler decodes the secrets of those elite performers, athletes, artists. Artists! Hey, that's us! Scientists, CEOs, and others who have changed our definition of the possible, teaching us how we too can stretch far beyond our capabilities and make impossible dreams much more attainable. We are capable of so much more than we know. That's the message at the core, the art of impossible. Building up cutting-edge neuroscience and more than 20 years of research, Stephen Cutler, a best-selling author, a peak performance expert, and executive director of the Flow Research Collective, lays out the blueprint for extreme performance improvement. If you want to aim high, here is your playbook. Inspirational and aspirational, pragmatic and accessible, The Art of Impossible is a life-changing experience disguised as a how-to manual for peak performance that anyone can use to shoot for the stars, spacesuit not included, obviously. Come on, that would be insane if the spacesuit was included too. So... I'm just going to go through some of the things. I've I've listened to about three chapters of it with my wife in the car, but I haven't read it yet. So I'm going to start it when I'm done with the Oz principle and we, that we've talked about. And anyway, there's a lot of books to read. I also have a Herbert Howells book to read. Oh, anyway. So I have a lot of books scattered around that I'm partway through and it drives some of my students crazy. They can't handle the fact that I'm I don't finish an entire book before I start the next one. I just kind of leave books everywhere. And then when I'm there, I kind of pick up that book. And so first of all, in chapter two, he gives the passion recipe. So when it's like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm passionate about. That's okay. This chapter gives you kind of the layout from start to finish. So he, these are the subcategories that he goes through of make a list He's very specific about making a list of 25 things that you're curious about. And he says, be specific. It's not just like, oh, I'm curious about football. It's, I'm curious. I mean, he go- <laughs> he's so specific. Sometimes you might not even know enough to know this, but it's, I want, I'm really curious about, quote, the pass blocking mechanics required to play left tackle. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're curious in football, you probably know some of it, but Again, be specific about what about this such and such category. And if you're listening to this podcast, mostly you're probably curious about music and or early music. So what about it, though? What what 
what about early music? What about choral music are you, or even more broadly classical music, are you interested in? And then he said, hunt for intersections. So you're really interested in this. Oh, and there's an overlap with this thing. And so then you make time to play with the intersections of, okay, well, I have this category and I have early music and choral music. So now I'm going to like play around with, well, how does early choral music influence the music of today? And just listen to podcasts, like listen to TED Talks, read books, do some, and it's just like 30 minutes on a weekend. You just find what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. And then you kind of let those simmer and you think about it. And then when you realize, holy cow, I am passionate about this. This is the thing that I am super passionate about. Then you go public. You go public, not just necessarily with one of them, but you, you, you figure out what you're passionate about and you, you start posting things about it. You start asking people questions about it. And in doing so, you, you, you get these kind of positive reinforcements, positive feedback from others that kind of gives you that hit of dopamine that makes you want to keep going. And so after you get, you know, just asking people questions and just kind of like having casual conversations and getting that positive feedback from people that motivates you to keep going, then you you try to find others who are having similar a similar passion and then you you know you find and you find and it, it's not even necessarily with just people who have the same passion but you're trying to well I'll just instead of paraphrasing I'm just going to read it why would I try to paraphrase I'm just going to read it Simple conversations with strangers will get things going. Walk into your neighborhood bar, start chatting with whoever sits next to you, and teach them about stuff you've been teaching yourself. Then do it again. Talk to a different stranger. Tell a few friends about your ideas. Or join join a meetup devoted to the subject, an online community, a book club. If one doesn't exist, start your own. Boom. See? So it's – and then you do it again. And then you have to do that in order. So it's not just like, oh, cool, you just go randomly sit next to strangers because maybe they don't care. Maybe you won't get that positive reinforcement, right? So then once you – anyway, you could go on and on about going public. And then you transform that passion into a purpose. You have to find a way – it's kind of it's what Simon Sinek talks about with start with why of what is your purpose. You have this purpose to go and drive and do something bigger than yourself, and then after you've translated it into purpose, it's you, you put your purpose into practice. And so that's kind of the, the passion recipe, as he talks about in the chat, uh, is the chapter in the book, chapter two. So for me, and that is what I've been doing with Sound of Ages. That literally is, you know, I always find some sense of validation when I read these books about this is how you build success. It's like, hey, I did that. It's always really discouraging when I read, oh, I did that backwards. Whoops. So like even with this podcast, I started talking to friends. I started talking to professors. I started talking to my students, teaching my students about early music and why it's important. And it all kind of culminated over a year to where then when COVID happened, I was like, I had episodes planned before the outbreak 
And I was like, I'm too scared. And I had been doing a little five-minute Early Music Monday Facebook Live videos for months, for probably a year before. And I was like, I need to turn this into a full-fledged podcast. And then during the pandemic, I finally did it. And it was... But and it was the it was the big step of going public after that. And it anyway, and it just has snowballed. But you follow that recipe because I went through that same process without even realizing it. But that's what college did for me in studying of it helped me the passion, the interconnection, the inter what did he say? What did he call it? I just read it. It's the looking for it, looking for it, intersections. I just I played with the intersections and was able to, you know, really, oh, I love choral music. I love good singing technique, and I love early music. What am I going to do with this? Okay, there should be a choir dedicated to these three things. Okay, well, there's not one here, so I'm going to start one. And then another chapter that I listen to that's really good is the, it's the hacking creativity. Now, this this has always struck me because... I don't feel like I'm a very creative person sometimes because I love certain stuff so much that I just end up wanting to, like, for example, there's certain composers that I love, so I want to compose something. They motivate me to compose and end up wanting to sound just like them, so I just end up rewriting what they wrote in a different way, and it's like, okay, well, that wasn't really creative. You just love this so much. So finding a way to take smaller, smaller stylistic elements from such composers and to really create my own thing is has been something that I've struggled with for a long time and really trying to get better at. Um, and there's one particular part in this chapter on hacking creativity that really struck me. Well, there's a couple parts. The first one is like the second step, which is he says, broaden your horizons so they he talks about like the left brain right brain divide creativity living on the right logic living on the left and how you need both sides of the brain to really hack creativity and so he talks about spending time well the next uh, the important of connecting those two parts of the brain finding things that don't seemingly connect and connect, let your mind wander. And so he talks about then the next thing is the importance of non-time, of doing things where you're not under stress, so that way you're not pinned down by these deadlines. And so non-time is like between 4.30 and 7.30 a.m. There's no deadline. This is extra time that you've just been given because there's no deadlines. There's not anything expected of you. You normally supposed to be asleep or whatever so and you have to let your mind wander like being silent and letting your letting your mind go to the, the furthest connections or the furthest reaches of your brain to make abstract and less common connections between things um think inside the box this is a really interesting one. And because I've and I've talked about this before, but you set parameters for yourself. And so they talk about this study of 
uh, students being given a list of nouns and being having to use them in a sentence, and then others being told to use a sentence without giving being given a list of nouns, and how the ones that were given nouns to use had a more creative sentence, and so. I find the same thing with composing. You have parameters you have to follow. I can only do this voicing. I can only have it be this long. I have to use such and such harmonies. I can't make it more difficult than X, etc. Composing, then you, or I, you know, you have more parameters. It actually opens you to be more creative within the box instead of thinking outside of the box. It's kind of a, a different application, but thinking inside the box. Um, and he goes on to... You know, do you have non-time? Anyway, he keeps going about non-time, and it's really incredible. And I think that in early music especially, early music, contemporary music, whatever, finding ways to expound your own creativity to to how am I going to get this to the audience? How am I going to make a living on this? This is the grit necessary to live the dream and to be a high achiever. So... I cannot wait to read the rest of this book. And, you know, I've read Grit, and I've re- I've talked to you about a bunch of books that I've kind of read along, as as, and then I talk about them. I can't even wait till I finished it before I tell you about it because I get so pumped up and so excited. So being able to carry that passion through to the end to see it through is is the name of the game. So so keep listening to early music, keep pushing, peace, keep being creative in the the musical realm, the choral realm, the early music realm, whatever creative field you're in. Because in the words of Michael Scott, you are creative. You are so much more creative than all the other saps that you work with. And it's true. So don't let the impossible or the perception of impossible stop you. Okay, I've rambled enough. You can thank my wife for these ramblings about leadership and success because it's all her fault that I am this really driven, ambitious person. I mean, I kind of was, okay, well, I was before, but I had no, like, tool, I didn't have as many tools or uh, resources to help help me to know how to do it. I was just like a, a really energetic and excited newborn baby deer flopping around with no sense of balance and then my wife came and she changed my life in pretty much every way and I can't talk about her too much because I don't like expressing real feelings on the air but she's incredible and my best friend so thanks to her okay enough of this gooey show of emotion if you like the podcast please give us a five-star rating write us a review Share the podcast. Go listen to early music. I don't care. Do something. Hopefully this inspired you to do something. Go check out The Art of Impossible. It's a great book. You follow us on social media. Check out our website. Stay up to date on all things early music and Sound of Ages. And we'll catch you next time here on Early Music Monday.